The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. You have your Bible, stand with me, please. Go to the book of Matthew, chapter 9. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study. This is part 34 of our study through this wonderful, wonderful gospel account. If you have it, say amen. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 27. The word of the Lord says this. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went about and spread his fame through all the district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of the Lord. I pray you receive it as such, and you may be seated. Well, growing up, I was amazed by my grandfather, who was particularly gifted in the art of stained glass. And I think I might have a picture of a couple of his pieces. Now, if you know anything about making stained glass, you know that it is an art form that requires not just creativity, but a lot of patience and kind of tedious skill. So I remember my grandfather's work table, and spread out on that table would be uh, many pieces of beautiful, beautiful glass, all of which were beautiful in and of themselves. You could hang any piece of that glass up on a window, and the sun uh, shining through it would bring a beautiful hue and, and color into, into the room. But then after that, he would cut the pieces into smaller pieces, and then he would put them together, and then you would take this step back, and you would see this beautiful masterpiece like you see there. He's so talented. Well, Matthew chapters 8 and 9 are much like a piece of stained glass. Matthew has pieced together 10 miracle stories of Jesus. And taken by themselves, any of these stories are beautiful. But when you put them together, as we have done, this is the last of the 10 stories. And you take a step back. Wow, what a masterpiece. Today, we're studying the last, actually, two of these stories and we get to step back and see this wonderful masterpiece. And so let's just do a quick review of these pieces of glass, as it were, that we've got over thus far. We saw in Matthew 5 through 7, let's just back up there, we, we have what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we see Jesus' teaching and the authority with which he taught. In Matthew 8 and 9, we've seen that Jesus has the power over sickness. He has healed multitudes of people. We've seen that he has the authority over the natural realm. Remember, he calmed the winds and the waves. 
And then we saw that he has power over the supernatural realm, realm by setting the demoniacs free from legions of demons. You move forward and you, we saw that Jesus has uh, the authority to forgive sins. We saw then that Jesus has the power to transform even the most sinful person, such was the case with Matthew. And today we're reminded that Jesus can give sight to the blind and again, that he is God and, and he, can, he has sovereignty over the powers of darkness that oppress people. Friends, oh, what a Savior. So today we take, take a step back and we say, hey, what is the, the, what is the, the stained glass piece that, that Matthew intends for us to see? Well, he has grouped these stories together to show his Jewish audience, first and foremost, and now us, that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, He is the Son of the living God, that He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah who would redeem His people and inaugurate God's kingdom upon the earth. What a glorious picture. Can you see it? So the image of Jesus, again, it's, it's this beautiful piece of work that Matthew has given us. And let me say, it demands a response. And we're going to see that in our text today. You can embrace Jesus. You can be amazed by Jesus. You can respond in love and adoration. Or like some of the people in the Bible, you can reject him. But friends, I'll tell you what you can't do. You cannot be indifferent towards Jesus. You cannot be indifferent. And so at the close of these miracles, we find three different responses by three groups of people to Jesus. Number one, we have the response of the two blind men. Number two, we have the response of the crowd. And then number three, we have the response of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And so my question for each of us as I move through this that I want us to ponder is to ask us, how have we responded to Jesus? How have we responded to Jesus? So number one, let's look at the response of the two blind men. After Jesus left Jairus' house in Capernaum, he went on his way and two blind men approached him. Now historians tell us that blindness was one of the grimmest ailments in the ancient world. It was considered to be only a little less serious than being dead. Let me say that again. Blindness was only considered to be a little bit less serious than being dead. The blind men have been hopeless their whole lives. But they've heard about a man... <laughs> They've heard about all these wonderful works, and they began to think, if we can just make our way to Jesus, perhaps we can experience the same transformation that so many other people have experienced. So look with me at verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. How did the blind men respond? Well, number one, I, I want to encourage 
us by saying that they responded with the right attitude. You know, we live in a day and age, I don't know if you've noticed, but people are entitled. They feel entitled, right? The younger generation in particular feels like the world owes them something. And as a matter of fact, they feel as if God owes them something. Friend God, friends, God owes us nothing. That's not how these men approach Jesus. They approach Jesus, yes, in desperation, but yet they approach him in humility because what do they cry out? They don't cry out, they don't give a demand. They cry out for what? Mercy. Hallelujah. They cry out for mercy. Even more remarkable than their attitude is the request, uh, the title, if you will, in which they address Jesus. They, not, they don't just respond with the right attitude. They respond with the right knowledge. This is profound. Look at verse 27 again. They cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us. And I want you to just to understand this, to, to really note this next part. They call Jesus son of David. Now, this is the first time that Matthew records anyone referring to Jesus as the son of David. So you're like, well, why is that significant? Why not just call him Jesus or Lord? Well, the title comes from the promise that God made to David, King David, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. So God promised David that through his lineage would come a great king, a deliverer, who would redeem God's people and establish his kingdom upon the earth. And of that kingdom, God promised through the prophet Nathan that, that king, of that kingdom there would be no end. And this figure uh, throughout Jewish history became known as the Messiah. And so this title, Son of David, is used for the promised messianic king. Now, no one yet has referred to Jesus in this way, but you've heard it in the book of Matthew. So turn back with me to the very first verse of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. Here's how Matthew starts his book. He's going to give you the lineage of Jesus, and he says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the what? Son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew makes the claim to his readers right at the start of this gospel account that he is the son of David. Jesus is the son of David, that he is the Christ come to bring God's kingdom. Really profound. But as the narrative goes on to this point, no one has called Jesus by the title. So who are the first ones to see that Jesus is the Messiah? Two blind men. Isn't the Bible awesome? <laughs> you see the irony, right? So how did the blind men respond? They responded in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 28. When he entered the house, Jesus, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, may it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. Oh, what a Savior. Jesus asked them, do you believe I'm able to do this? And the men immediately respond in the affirmative. And you may say, well, of course they responded like that. 
I mean, they've heard of all these healing miracles that Jesus has done. So why wouldn't he be able to open blind eyes? Well, this is very interesting. Throughout the Bible, God used many people to perform miracles. I mean, you think of Moses, you think of the prophets, you, you think of like Elijah and, and Elijah. You think of the apostles in the New Testament. And then out of all those miracles, you, this is really interesting. Do you know that no one besides Jesus healed the blind? But the Scriptures in the Old Testament promised that the Messiah's ministry, part of it, would be healing the blind. Let me, I'm going to put this on the screen, but Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6, six to 7, uh, this is about the coming Messiah. And it says this, I am the Lord, God speaking, I have called you in righteousness. This is the Messiah. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, watch this, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, there's a metaphor here, certainly. Jesus came to give light to and to open those who are spiritually blind and to offer them salvation. But there's also a literal piece here as well because Jesus came to physically open blind eyes and so to point to it's a, it's a shadow, it's, it's, it's a metaphor for what he was going to do. Or it points, I should say, to the metaphor that he is going to spiritually open blind eyes. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? Remember the part in that, I once was blind, but now I see. Thank the Lord that he opens blind eyes. So ultimately, what I want you to see at this point is that the blind men responded to Jesus in faith. Well, let's look, move on to the next group of people, the crowd. As the blind men went away, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to Jesus, and Jesus cast out the demon, and the man was immediately able to speak. Oh, what a Savior. Matthew doesn't give us the man's response But he does give us the response of the crowd. So look with me at verse 33. And the demon possessed man had been, or excuse me, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in all of Israel. The crowds were stunned, they marveled at Jesus' miracles. And this was a consistent response of the crowds. Uh, Let me just take you back a couple of chapters to Matthew chapter 7. This is at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he comes down off the hill and it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. Again, they marveled at his teaching. Now the crowds were full of Jewish people who would have been familiar with the Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. And they would have heard about the prophets and all of the miracles of the Old Testament. These crowds have sat under some of the best teachers amongst the Jewish people. But when they witnessed Jesus' teaching and His miracles, they were blown away saying, we've not seen anything like this. God is doing something new. We don't even have a category for what we're seeing. The crowds responded in amazement. And may I just suggest, friends... 
that we ought to be amazed by Jesus. You know, sometimes I fear that we've heard the gospel so much, particularly here in the Bible Belt, we're so accustomed to the message of Jesus that it just doesn't blow us away anymore. One of the reasons that we have communion every week now is that uh, our hope is that we're reminded that we take time and we focus every week on why we're here and why we're saved and why we're a part of God's kingdom. It's because Jesus Christ gave himself as a sacrifice and a substitute for us. He died and he rose again. And because of that, we can have life. And that message should never get old. I love the old hymn that, says, that goes like this. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song, listen, will ever be. In other words, I'll never grow tired of singing this song. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. The, the crowds responded in amazement, and so should we. Let's then look at the response of the final group, the religious leaders. Some of the Pharisees, the, these leaders of the Jewish people, the scholars, witnessed Jesus freeing a mute man, casting out a demon. And I want you to just notice their response. And they're grumpy. <laughs> look at verse 34. But the Pharisees said, so you've got the crowds marveling, and here's what the Pharisees said. He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Come on. Rule nine in Dr. Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life is this. Assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. Boy, we would do well to take that advice. The chapter is about listening and learning from one another, and Peterson argues that none of us know enough. If we did, our lives wouldn't be such a mess. And he asks, do you want to be the tyrannical king who has already figured out everything? Or do you want to be the hero, or perhaps even the fool, who is constantly learning and consequently transforming and getting better? Peterson suggests that instead of going into every conversation with the aim of proving your point, that we might assume that we might be able to learn something from someone else. Really listening instead of listening to respond. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 says this, that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. You know, I think one of the greatest tragedies in the Western world today is that people want to be right more than they want truth. That's devastating. That's toxic. And essentially, that was the posture of the Pharisees. They were very well trained in the Hebrew Scriptures, but they kind of missed the point because the Scriptures pointed to Jesus, and they missed it. But they were so blinded by their knowledge and their pride because of their knowledge that they were not open to hearing Jesus' fulfillment of the law and his teaching. What a tragedy. They missed Jesus because of their knowledge. They wanted to be right more than they wanted the truth. And therefore, they responded to Jesus how? In contempt. 
So you have the blind men responding in faith in Jesus Christ. You have the crowds responding in amazement. And then you have the Pharisees responding in contempt. Now at the center of all these responses, and actually at the center of Matthew 8 and 9, there's a commodity right at the center of these stories. And it is what we refer to as faith. Faith. It's been a common theme. You you think of the the faith of the Roman centurion in chapter 8. You think of the lack of faith in disciples of of the disciples when Jesus calmed the storms. Remember, he said, oh, ye of little faith. You think of the faith uh, that we dealt with last week with a woman um, with the issue of blood. She'd been sick for 12 years and just wanted to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And now we have the faith of the two blind men. So some people take these verses about faith and they kind of frame uh, faith in a certain way. They, They take it along with texts like this. This is John 14, 13. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, This I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So some people frame the idea of faith much like a supernatural vending machine. And it goes something like this. You decide what you want, healing, money, power, etc. And then you just muster up enough faith. It's like dropping a coin in the vending machine. You know, you want something on the top row, the most expensive. You've got to collect enough coins or money to, to put in there. You press the button, then it comes out. Then if you don't get what you ask for, what do you do? It just means you don't have enough faith. So you work to muster up more faith. But there's a problem with that framework. You know what it is? It puts us at the center. It's on you. And friends, any time with any doctrine that we are at the center, we're in for trouble. The Bible talks about us. It has great implications about us. But the Bible is not about us. It's about the Lord. Amen? The faith references that we see in Matthew 8 and 9 are centered around who Jesus is. He's the object of that faith. And as important as faith is, and I don't want to diminish that, the Bible talks a lot about the importance of faith. As a matter of fact, there's not salvation apart from faith. But Ephesians says that faith is a gift. We can't even boast about faith. And as important as faith is, you know, there are narratives in this chapter that mention, or these chapters that say nothing about faith. You think of Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus healed her from a fever. says nothing about her faith. You, you think of the, remember the centurion servant who was sick? He wasn't even near Jesus. The Bible says nothing about his faith, but yet he was healed. Look at the, the mute demoniac here, demoniac here in, the, in the text. Does the Bible say anything about his faith? No, he can't speak. Furthermore, Jesus calmed the raging sea, remember, in spite of the disciples' lack of faith. And until the story of the two blind men, every one of the people who were healed only had a partial picture of who Jesus was. Some of them just, many of them just saw him as a miracle worker or perhaps a prophet. They only had one piece of the stained glass, as it were. They couldn't see the whole picture. So I would say that they had imperfect faith, but yet Jesus healed them. Listen, faith is ultimately ultimately about trusting God and his perfect will. Remember when Jesus was in the garden? What did he pray Father, if there be any other way, he knew what was coming. But not my will, yours be done. 
not my will, but yours be done. That's faith. Jesus warned his followers that they would face persecution. He warned them and us that we would all face tribulation. He didn't promise that that faith would make us immune to the troubles of this world. Friends, we lived in a cursed world, and, and it's full of trouble. And in John 16, Jesus says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. It's coming. But he says, I've overcome the world. The promise of faith is that no matter what comes our way, yes, sometimes the Lord answers our prayers gloriously in the way in which we want. And I believe in healings, and I pray for healings, and I, I hope that happens for some of you today or for the people that I prayed for earlier. But when God doesn't answer our prayers in the way we want, I don't think we can just assume that it's a lack of faith. I think we have to be careful about implying this. I mean, you imagine someone dying in the hospital, leaving behind perhaps even young children, and we're implying that, oh, if you had more faith, you wouldn't be leaving your family. Think about the implication. I just don't think that's what the Bible is saying. Faith is about trusting Jesus and having peace even in the midst of tribulation. Let me say something else about faith. Do you know everyone has faith? Everyone. Do you know even atheists have faith? The next time you meet an atheist, you know what the first thing is that you should do? You should congratulate them for their faith, <laughs> remarkable faith. Because it takes way more faith to believe that all of this, that, you know, the universe and all within just happened, poof, haphazardly than it does to believe in an intelligent designer. So the next time you meet an atheist, say, wow, man, I congratulate you on your faith. Every group in our text, not just the blind men, actually had faith. They just had faith in the wrong things. Let's just start with the Pharisees. They had faith in themselves and their traditions. They had to remember faith in their knowledge. So the, the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would come and lead the people in military conquest quest to defeat the, the tyranny of Rome who were oppressing them. They had no room for the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come and die for his enemies. They had no category for that. And because of their pride, they were blinded to their misinterpretation of the Scriptures. They were also, they had faith in their self-righteousness. They, no, they saw no need for a Savior. They, they thought of themselves as good, law-abiding, not Christians, but citizens. There you go. Thanks for helping me preach. They had faith in themselves and their self-righteousness. They were not looking for someone to save them from their sins. They were looking for someone to save them from Rome. And they had faith in their traditions. They had created all these extra-biblical laws. And they had faith in those laws that, hey, this is how we can get to God. And so they missed Jesus. They had faith in themselves. The crowds had faith in Jesus' power, but not necessarily saving faith faith. The crowds had a measure of faith. They were astonished. They marveled, remember, at Jesus' teaching and His miracles. They didn't know what to do with it, but they said, listen, we've never seen anything like this. 
They just kind of stood back and they marveled. But the blind men had faith to follow Jesus. Verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now the word translated, can can we put that next verse up, Wendy? I think I have this. There we go. Jesus passed on from there, two blind men, and I want you to notice this, this phrase, followed him. The word translated follow there is a Greek word that means to accompany spatially, which they certainly did. But it also means to join as a disciple, not not necessarily as one of the twelve, but to to, to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus in the general sense. Now, many scholars believe that this word, combined with the fact that the men cried out for mercy, suggests that they wanted more than healing. They wanted wholeness and forgiveness of sins. Ultimately, they wanted to be, as we like to say around here, real followers of Jesus. The blind men have, it it would seem, the kind of faith that Jesus calls us all to place in Him. So I close by asking you how you've responded to Jesus. Some of you perhaps are like the Pharisees. Maybe you're here because someone invited you or because you grew up in church, perhaps. Or because you, you know, this is maybe, this is somewhat nostalgic for you. But you don't really buy into the whole Christian thing. Perhaps you see Jesus as a moral teacher and somebody that's maybe maybe he's an ideal. But you don't see him as the son of God, the one who died and was raised. Maybe as a post-enlightenment Westerner, you are all for reason and science and humanism and progress. But this face stuff just seems a little bit mystical to you. You're a rationalist. Hear me. The good news is this. You know, some Christians say, well, you know, they'll say, well, why should I become a Christian? And, you know, how do I know this is true? And they don't know why they believe what they believe. So just say, they'll say this, because the Bible says so. Well, that's not going to help an intellectual. It's not going to help a rationalist. But I want to tell you, the good news is this. You don't have to drop all rationality to become a Christian. There are many logical reasons to believe, and I don't have time to get into them, but let me say this. Our faith hinges on one historical event, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are many compelling reasons that I could go into to believe in that event, not the least of which is hundreds of eyewitness accounts, and many of those eyewitnesses were willing to die for that claim that Jesus is raised. But yes, Christianity certainly goes beyond reason. It does take an element of faith, but it's not blind faith. I love what Tim Keller tweeted uh, not too long ago. He said that Christianity is too rational for mysticism and too mystical from rationalism. That's good right there. Let me read it again. Christianity is too rational for mysticism and too mystical for rationalism. If you find yourself today a skeptic, I encourage you to look at the validity of the resurrection. Start there. And then maybe you'll be open to the possibility that Jesus actually is who he claimed to be. And one more note, even those of you who are really Christians, let me just encourage you not to be blinded by your tradition. I mean, we grew up, most of us, in the Bible Belt. And we, we come from traditions that many of us that have misinterpreted scriptures 
and have added legalistic rules on top of it. And sometimes we can't see the truth. I've had people say to me, I've shown them clearly what the Scripture says. I mean, clear. And they said to me, well, I'll never believe that because that's not the way I was raised. That's tragic. Don't let your tradition blind you from truth. How do you know you have faith like a Pharisee? Well, perhaps you're still walking in legalism rather than freedom that you have in Christ. Maybe you're not open to those other interpretations. Some of you, on the other hand, may have the faith of the crowds, and this is what I find quite frequently. Maybe you're amazed by Jesus. You know, about anybody I ask here, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Not just, I'm saying in in this area. What do you think about Jesus? Oh, he's awesome. He's awesome. And being amazed is great. We should be amazed by Jesus. But being amazed, if you stop there, will not save you. It will not bring you eternal life. You can identify with the faith of the crowds in the story. But that doesn't mean that you're saved and you know Jesus Christ personally. What I hope is that you have the faith of the blind man. The the, the blind man's faith went beyond amazement. They saw Jesus as the Messiah. They recognized their need for him. They cried to him for mercy. And an even better story, perhaps, if we go back just a little bit, is the narrative told earlier in the chapter 9, Matthew's testimony. Matthew was known amongst the Jews as being a traitor. He was a a, a tax collector. He exploited the marginalized for his own gain. And remember what what Matthew did when Jesus approached him? Jesus said, follow me. Matthew, this is significant. He got up from his tax booth and he followed Jesus. That's significant. He never went back to that tax booth. In other words, his life was transformed. He was not going to exploit people anymore. He wasn't going to work as a traitor anymore. He followed Jesus. He had such faith in Jesus that he was willing to obey him and allow him to transform his life. How do you know that you've responded to Jesus in the proper way? Well, it's not about what you said or what you say. It's not even about how you feel. Well, I just feel the Lord. Okay. That's good, but that's not how you know that you have the right kind of faith. The way that you know you have saving faith is by what you do. It's not salvation by works, but works are an evidence of salvation. How do you treat people? How do you serve the poor? How do you serve the orphan and the widow? How do you walk in righteousness? How do you behave at work? How do you handle people who disagree with you? Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus says, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father. And that's because that's the evidence of true faith. So my prayer is that each of you have responded to Jesus with that kind of faith, that you've repented of your sins and that you are wholeheartedly following Him. Oh, what a Savior. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful that you have had mercy on us. The blind men cried out for mercy. Most of the people in this room have cried out for mercy. I pray that no one here would be deceived just because they've come to church or they grew up in church. 
pray that they would not be deceived, that they have the right kind of faith. Perhaps they are amazed by you. But maybe they haven't given their lives truly to you. Help us all to evaluate our lifestyles and look at the evidence to see whether or not it's there. To testify that we are or we are not real followers of Jesus. And if anybody in this room is not, I pray that they get right with you today. For every Christian in here, myself included, let us never be puffed up because of our knowledge, our theological expertise, that we miss learning from others, that we miss seeing the true things that we've missed. May we be open to the Holy Spirit and to the wisdom of others. May we long for the truth more than we long for being right. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.